Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy Friday. Hope you had a great week. It was a short one for those of us in the US, which of course makes us wish that every work week was just four days. It was so short, in fact, and yet so jam-packed that we forgot to line up a guest for you. So if you come for our weekly interview, you should probably just switch podcasts now. Of course, if you do that, you are going to miss out on our hot, gossipy news stories, which are even hotter and more gossipy than ever. Haha. Are you ready? Here we go. Listeners of this podcast know that we love talking about Facebook, in large part because we can't believe it's chutzpah. Two cases in point. First, earlier this week, Facebook released news about some new spy glasses that it had developed with Ray-Ban. One has to admire Facebook's nerve in copying Snap's video spectacles almost to a T. It makes their blatant theft of Instagram's stories look like child's play. But it's the privacy angle that really stands out here. These glasses can videotape others almost completely surreptitiously. Yes, there is an LED light that is supposed to alert subjects that they are being filmed, but it is easy to cover up. In addition, these glasses look almost exactly like any other Ray-Ban glasses. Unlike Google Glass, they don't immediately identify the wearer as a geeky perv. Taking a step back, One has to wonder how a company like Facebook that is challenged by congressional committees almost every day about privacy would think it was a good idea to develop yet another tool to invade consumers' privacy. And that leads us to our second Facebook fail of the week. Today, Facebook revealed that data it sent to researchers who were studying misinformation on the platform was fundamentally flawed. It only included about half of Facebook's U.S. audience, not the entire audience, as the company had previously claimed. One researcher told the Times that the projects of as many as 47 researchers who are working with the data could be in jeopardy. While Facebook claimed that the error was the result of a technical glitch, they have hardly inspired confidence about their transparency. Let's remember that this is the same company that kicked NYU researchers off of its platform in August. Maybe it's time for Facebook to turn its new glasses on itself. Last weekend, a reader wrote to me asking why tech companies should speak out about the abortion law that Texas passed last week. What does American Airlines have to do with abortion, said the reader, who politely suggested that companies can't possibly cater to both pro-abortion and anti-abortion advocates, and that asking them to take a stand on an issue unrelated to their business would only contribute to the polarization of the electorate. It's a widely held view, and the decision yesterday by the U.S. Department of Justice to challenge the law, which U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland has called quote, clearly unconstitutional, may well reinforce it. After all, if anybody should be pushing back against what happened in the Lone Star State, it should be other legislators, not companies, right? Still, there are more reasons than not for tech companies, and particularly Tesla, to step out of the shadows and bat down this law. It's a fact that abortion restrictions lead to higher health care costs for employers. But one consequence of the Texas law that could hit tech companies particularly hard is its impact on hiring. According to a study by the social enterprise Rhea Ventures, 60% of women say they would be discouraged from taking a job in a state that has tried to restrict access to abortion. And the same is true for a slight majority of men, the study found. 
Texas's abortion law also creates an extrajudicial enforcement mechanism that should alarm tech companies. The new law allows private citizens to sue not just abortion providers, but anyone who wittingly or unwittingly helps a woman obtain an abortion, whether or not they have a connection to the case. More, there are significant financial rewards should a plaintiff win. Each defendant is subject to paying $10,000, as well as subject to covering the costs and plaintiff's attorney's fees. Just imagine if this precedent were applied to an issue that involves tech companies, like consumer privacy. As Seth Chandler, a law professor at the University of Houston Law Center, observed to ABC this week, quote, the recipe that this law has developed is not restricted to abortion. It can be used for any constitutional rights that people don't like. Tech companies might very well say that taking sides on the Texas abortion debate would be the political equivalent of jumping on a live wire, and it's easy to sympathize with this viewpoint. Even though Pew Research reports that about 6 in 10 Americans say abortion should be legal in all or most cases, passions are heated on both sides. Still, corporations have safely stood up for their values on controversial issues, as Apple, Cisco, and American Airlines found when they joined a legal effort in 2016 to block a North Carolina law that banned transgender people from using public bathrooms consistent with their gender identity. In fact, a year later, that law was rescinded. Already, the CEOs of Lyft and Yelp have taken very public positions against the Texas law, but a company like Tesla could have an even bigger impact on Texas politics. Elon Musk's move to Texas ignited a firestorm of interest in the Texas tech scene, and Texas Governor Greg Abbott was so cognizant of Musk's influence that he said Musk supported his state's, quote, social policies the day after the new law was passed. Musk has so far refused to take a stand on the law. When asked about the issue, he responded that he would, quote, prefer to stay out of politics. I think that's a mistake. In May 2019, nearly 200 CEOs, including Twitter's Jack Dorsey and Peter Grauer of Bloomberg, signed a full-page New York Times ad declaring that abortion bans are bad for business. Read the ad, Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health, independence, and economic stability of our employees and customers. It's time for Elon Musk and Tesla to take a similar public stand in Texas. There is certainly no shortage of startup fundings these days, but one deal caught our eye this week in particular. On Thursday, Databricks, which allows customers to use and analyze their data across different cloud vendors, announced that it had raised $1.6 billion in funding. Just six months earlier, however, the company had pulled in $1 billion in funding. This latest round represents a 36% increase over its previous valuation, which, again, did we say this already, happened just six months ago. Databricks is now valued at $38 billion, making it the fourth largest privately held venture-backed U.S. company, according to PitchBook. How can a company which is generating $600 million in revenue and losing money possibly be worth $38 billion, you might ask? Well, Databricks is in direct competition with Snowflake, which went public last year to great fanfare and is currently worth $100 billion on trailing 12-month revenues of $851 billion. Snowflake is also losing money. And the revenue is recurring. But one of Databricks' biggest assets is the company it keeps. Amazon, Microsoft, and Alphabet are all investors, in large part because of Databricks' business model. Unlike Snowflake, Databricks does not attempt to be a cloud services broker. It merely bills its clients for its data analysis. As if any more proof were needed, Databricks' huge round provides yet further evidence of the growing size of later stage rounds these days. 
Stay tuned for a Blockbuster IPO or direct listing soon. It's almost that time of the year when startup followers from around the world gather at TechCrunch's annual conference, Disrupt, which will be held virtually again this year on September 21st to 23rd. Join the community to expand your horizons and your network with founders and CEOs from companies like Coinbase, Dapper Labs, GitLab, Canva, and more. Attend for less than $100, or you can get a free innovator pass if you are one of the first 10 people to register with promo code STRICTLYVCFREE at TechCrunch.com forward slash disrupt. But you'll want to hurry. It's a first come first serve offer. And once they're gone, they're gone. Epic Games, the developer of the hugely popular video game Fortnite, found some solace today in its lawsuit against Apple. Epic had alleged that Apple was unfairly restricting developers from informing consumers about alternative ways to pay for iOS games and apps. Apple wanted the developers to collect payment via its App Store, where the tech giant collects up to a 30% commission. A federal court judge largely agreed with Epic, forcing Apple to release its hold on developers and permit them to include links in their apps to other payment methods. However, the judge did not go as far as Epic wanted, namely to declare that the App Store was a monopoly. And she found that Epic had violated its agreement with Apple and owed Apple millions of dollars in unpaid commissions. Indeed, the biggest takeaway from the judge's ruling may just be the judge's tacit conclusion that the App Store has a right to exist at all, given how easy it is to buy games or apps on the App Store versus switching to a browser and fumbling to find one's credit card information, Apple can probably rest easy that its $20 billion App Store cash cow is not going away anytime soon. This week, for an upcoming meeting organized by the international venture firm B Capital Group, I was invited to interview Bain Capital Chairman Steve Paliuka, Carlisle co-founder David Rubenstein, Jean Salada, the CEO and founding partner of Bering Private Equity Asia, and Sheila Patel, the former chair of Goldman Sachs Asset Management and today the vice chairman of B Capital. It was a wide-ranging conversation, and I wrote up a small part of it for TechCrunch concerning why none of the four executives see interest rates rising anytime soon, which they predict will keep this go-go market booming. Meanwhile, another part of our conversation touched on what's happening right now in China, and on this front, there was some disagreement about what tensions between China and the U.S. mean from a business standpoint, and how to interpret the spate of reforms coming out of the Chinese government that aim to curb the power of companies in a variety of sectors, from online tutoring to, more recently, online gaming. For his part, Carlisle's David Rubenstein suggested that Washington-Beijing ties will worsen before they improve, though he does anticipate that this chilly relationship could warm in another year or two. I think the U.S.-China relationship is going to be in a not a great shape for at least another year or so. I think the Biden administration is not going to engage China on any significant issues. And I think China is not interested in, in coming to the table right now. Rubenstein said he definitely doesn't see the point of trying to maneuver around the government, as unlike in the U.S. where companies can hire lobbyists, it's far harder in China to pursue an agenda that doesn't sync with the government. Generally, I think People should take signals from the Chinese government about what it wants. Clearly, Chinese government, when they want to do something, they get it done more effectively than I think the United States government does in some cases. So, for example, if you're in the tutoring business in China right now, that's probably not a great business to be in because they don't want to be having private sector tutoring. So you have to be very careful and keep your head down and basically not try to beat the government at its own game, which is controlling certain things. 
Patel, meanwhile, said a lot of what Americans might find surprising about some of these newest edicts coming out of China are really not so shocking as they pertain to privacy and data, and that what's more surprising is that China is taking action where the U.S. has been able to do so. I, I think you see some strong themes in what the Chinese government has done. I mean, GDPR is a, a, a big deal and continues to be a big deal for companies in Europe. So control of data and concern about data, particularly on the consumer level, is something you've seen in other regions, not just China. And that certainly is an underpinning of some of the action you've seen. Meanwhile, Paliuka of Bain Capital and Jean Salada of Bering Private Equity said that a lot of what makes it into the headlines is really just empty rhetoric. Paliuka, who's also co-owner of the Boston Celtics, said, for example, there really hasn't been much of a slowdown in business dealings between the two superpowers. There's an interesting paradox with all this going on that uh, we've had record trade with China in the middle of it. So private practices are continuing to have robust trade between China and other countries and the U.S. specifically. Salada, who is based in Hong Kong, put an even finer point on things. If you look at what's happening at the business level, it's completely the opposite. You can talk to Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan. They just bought 100% of their business in China. You can talk to Larry Fink at BlackRock. They just bought 100% of their business in China. You can talk to Sheila's old company, David Solomon. They just bought 100% of their business in China. So what people are doing with their feet is very different than what the politicians are saying publicly. Salada also said he thinks that some of the headlines about China's ongoing crackdown on big tech in its backyard may seem heavy-handed right now to Americans, but the country is mostly just executing on some of the same issues that the U.S. is currently grappling with. It's just able to do it a lot faster. That's all we got, guys. Have a great weekend.